Uh, We are reading here about the ministry of your spirit. And we pray for your spirit to come here right now. We pray that you, Jesus, by your spirit, would walk around in this place. You know the hearts of the people in this room. You know my heart. And you know, Lord Jesus, that we, more than anything else, need to know the love of the Father. So please, by your Spirit, come and open this up and help us to see this a little bit more clearly. We pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Late in the afternoon... On the 19th of June, 2011, Father's Day this year, a Sunday, a young Irishman made his way down the 18th fairway at the Congressional Country Club in Bethesda, Maryland. Thousands of people lined that fairway, celebrating and applauding his feet as a golfer. He torched the field. This is the United States Open. He was 16 under par. He had an eight-stroke lead over his next closest competitor, Jason Day. And thousands of people lined that 18th fairway, that 72nd hole, tipping their hats, applauding, celebrating this incredible feat. And I watched this. And I saw something in Rory McIlroy as he walked that 18th fairway that I found both poignant and powerful. And I'll be a little bit self-disclosing here, a little bit autobiographical. It was something for which I have longed my entire life. As Rory McIlroy approached that 72nd green, the 18th green of that golf course, the smile left his face as he scanned the crowd to the right, looking For the one face in those thousands of faces that mattered the most to him. The face of his father. And when he saw his face, the father who had sacrificed for him for years... The father who had worked three jobs for him to pay for golf lessons, to pay for equipment, to pay greens fees, to pay travel costs, to travel to tournaments. When he saw the face of his father, the smile returned with the poignancy and an intensity that can only come from a son who knows the love and the acceptance of that father.
We've looked at the ministry of the Spirit over these last weeks. We're continuing to look at it. Last week we considered several aspects of that ministry. That it is the Spirit who gives new life. It is the Spirit who gives new birth. It is the Spirit who imparts life and who reorients and recalibrates and redirects the soul of a person, raising one from death in sin to life, to newness of life, so that everything begins to change. If you're here this morning and you, and you care about spiritual things, not just in some, some generic Steve Jobs sense of the word, But if you're here and you care about spiritual things, beginning with your own guilt and and a recognition of your own sin, and, and you care about righteousness, and you care about knowing who Jesus Christ is, and you care about moving in the direction of Jesus and hearing his word and listening to his voice, if your conscience is alive to things that are right and things that are wrong, these things matter to you. I can I think I can say with some reasonable assurance that new life has been imparted to you. You were dead and now you are alive. And that is the sovereign, glorious, wonderful work of the Spirit. But that's not all of it. The Spirit, having imparted this life to you, is now leading you. Having laid hold of you, He is leading you. And you've been sealed by the Spirit. And with the Spirit, you've been, you've been given this mark of ownership. You belong now to the Father who loved you, who gave the Son to redeem you. The Spirit is the mark of that love and that redemption. And God has given you himself in the person of the Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing your final inheritance. He's given you himself as the promissory note. But as Paul puts it in Philippians 1, the work that he has begun in you, he will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He will finish what he started. And in the language of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, there is waiting for you a glory that is simply incomprehensible and inexpressible. And it is the Spirit relentless in his work, who will continue working in you to give life to your mortal bodies, raising those mortal bodies from death to life, just as he did for, in Jesus' case and for Jesus. And now it is the Spirit by whom, Paul says, we put to death the deeds of the body, or as one commentator puts it, the misdeeds of the body. How do you know How do you know those who are being led? As I said, those who are being led, those who are in this journey are being led on a journey from sin and death to righteousness and life. And those are the children of God. And that is how you identify them, that they're engaged in this fight. They're battle scarred. They're battle scarred. They're in the fight of their lives and the fight for their lives. And it is the spirit who is leading them. And who by his indwelling presence enables them to persevere in this fight. Doing battle with, as we alluded earlier, doing battle with the world, the flesh, yes, and even the devil. That's all the ministry of the Spirit. 
And even when they fail, when they stumble and fall, it is the ministry of the Spirit dwelling within them to remind them of this incredible truth, these incredible words in the midst of this fight where we stumble and fall and we are battle-scarred and we grow weary and tired. It is the ministry of the Spirit to remind us of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the end of this chapter, Romans 8 39, there is nothing in all the creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Spirit gives us these truths and presses these truths deep into the fabric of our souls. That is His work. And right here, right in the middle of this eighth chapter, this, this chapter that is like an Everest. Right in the middle of this chapter, as we make our way to the peak, to the top, to the summit. Here is this focus upon the ministry of the Spirit. That in the midst of this fight and this struggle. We learn that it is the highest and most important and central ministry of the Spirit. To nurture in us an awareness of the Father's smile. To cultivate in us. To develop in us. Then to prompt in us. To incline in us. An inclination to move not away from our Father in the midst of our distress. Not away from our Father in the midst of our struggle. But in the direction of our Father where we will see and know the smile of our Father. Folks, I've told you the story, I think, of our daughter Katie and her sinus surgery when she was 11 years old. I think I told you that at that time in my life, though I have no inclination, no ability, no aptitude at all for biology or chemistry or any of the other things that you have to study in order to be a physician, when they wheeled my 11-year-old daughter down to that operating room, there is one thing that I wished that I could do, perform the surgery myself. And I would have said, time out, I'm going to medical school, and I'm going to learn how to do this. I'm going to practice on other people's kids, and then I'm going to come back and do this on my daughter because there's There's nobody on this planet who loves my child the way I do. Nobody except her mother. What I may not have told you is that after that surgery, when Katie was lying in the recovery room and her face was all stuffed with with all kinds of gauze and stuff to stop the bleeding, and her face is just full of blood and pain and anguish as she comes out from under the anesthetic. I'm standing there by her bed, and she looks up at me in pain, not fully out from under the anesthesia, and says, Daddy, please don't be mad at me. She's got tubes in her body. She's got packing in her face. 
And the thing she's worried about is me being upset with her because she wants to rip these tubes out of her arms and get her face free of all of this discomfort. And what I wanted as a father was to crawl into that bed with her and hold her in my embrace and reassure her that in the midst of her confusion and grief and anguish, I was there smiling my affection and love upon her. That's the kind of imagery that is here in this passage. Paul focusing on the highest, what Calvin calls the first, not in chronological order, but first in significance, the first ministry of the Spirit, the first and highest and central and most exalted ministry of the Spirit is the Spirit's ministry to us, reassuring us, inclining us to understand, prompting us to believe that we are children of our Heavenly Father. And that the Father's smile remains and rests upon us. He does this, Paul does, in a couple of ways. There are a couple of aspects to this. Look first at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. At the end of the message, at the end of the sermon last week, I gave you some illustrations of how this witness of the Spirit shows up in the lives of believers. I shared the story of Eric Martz, my banker friend back in Richmond, Indiana, who did not know the gospel and at 35 or 36 years of age came to understand the gospel and he couldn't come to worship services He couldn't sing, not because he couldn't sing, but he couldn't sing because the realities of the gospel had so gripped his heart, all he could do was weep with joy. And I read to you from Jonathan Edwards' own journals and experience that he had of the majesty and wonder of the love of Christ for him and how it left him reduced to tears of joy. Now look, these are just examples and illustrations. Barb said to me after that sermon last week, we were sitting on the beach. She said, you know, I've never had anything like that happen. And I said, well, I haven't either, I don't think, maybe on one occasion. But I said, have you ever felt reassured? Have you ever felt joy? Have you ever felt a sense of wonder as you've read the Gospels or as you've prayed through the divine hours, as you've read some? She said, yes, of course. I said, that's it. That's it. That is the spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. Let me just remind you of one of the ministries of the Spirit that we talked about last week. Remember that the Spirit has moved in if you're a Christian this morning. The Spirit has taken up residence. The Spirit has brought the very presence of the Father and the Son to dwell in you. John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's the ministry of the Spirit who brings the presence of the Father and the Son. But remember what I said last week. The Spirit is not a silent presence. The Spirit is not a passive presence. 
I think I've suggested to you over these last couple of weeks that we have to be very suspicious of things that have worked their way, woven their way into the fabric of our culture and which influence us. How do you measure the reality of the presence of God in your life? That's empiricism. You can't measure it. Don't allow yourself to fall prey to the corrosive and erosive effects of empiricism. If I can't weigh it, see it, taste it, touch it, feel it, it isn't real. Don't fall prey to that. I can't understand it. How does the spirit move in? I don't know. At some point, friends... I've got, to, I've got to be cynical about my rationalism and set it aside and accept that when the scriptures speak, they speak truth, whether I can understand it or not. How does the God of the universe take up residence in this poor, pathetic, paltry life? I don't understand that. Solomon said, not even the highest heavens can contain you. How can my heart? Contain the God of the universe. I don't know. But the Bible says that he does. And he is not, and this is the point, he is not a passive presence. He is not a silent presence. This passage is telling us, this 16th verse is telling us that he is an active presence. And what is he doing? He is bearing witness. He is bearing witness about what? About our adoption. He is bearing witness that we are sons, that we have the status as heirs, but even more that we are children. And you remember the distinction that sons has to do with status. It has to be, has to do with being honored, but children has to do with relationship. And we have both. We are sons. We have the status of Jesus. But we have this relationship. We are both honored and exalted, and we are the objects of the tender relational affection of our Father in heaven. It is both status and relationship, and the work of the Spirit has particularly to do with the fact that we are children of our Heavenly Father, children of our beloved Father. He bears witness to this. Now, here's an interesting thing. The word in the text that is translated bear witness is actually made up of two words. It's made up of a little preposition that means with. But the main part of the word is the word from which we get our word martyr. Martyr. What did martyrs do? I love this. You need my friends, if I, can, if I can encourage us all this week to meditate on this, really think about this, really take some time to pray about this and ask for the Spirit himself to create some measure of vividness and reality about this. What did the martyrs do that led to them becoming martyrs? They told the truth. They told the truth. The word in the original simply means witness. They were witnesses. 
Acts 1.8, you shall be my martyrs from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. You shall be my martyrs, witnesses. And what do witnesses do? Witnesses tell the truth. They speak the truth in an environment, in a setting where there is some confusion about what is true. They tell the truth in a place where someone needs to hear what is true so that what is true can gain the ascendancy, so that what is true can dominate the landscape and all of the lies can be pressed to the periphery and out of the courtroom. I listened to a sermon this last week. I listen to sermons occasionally because I need to be preached to. And there are three people I tend to listen to more than anybody else. I read a lot of Martin Lloyd-Jones, but I listen to Sinclair Ferguson, and I listen to Joan Novenson, and I listen to Crazy Mark out in Seattle, Mars Hill Church. This last week I listened to a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson, and it was on this text. And I'm unashamed to tell you that I got this illustration from him, though I knew the illustration immediately when he opened his mouth. It was his own story of every Saturday afternoon, late in the afternoon, going to his aunt's home or his uncle's home. I don't remember which, because they had a television set and his family did not. And they would go over there in the middle of the afternoon and he'd have to play with his two girl cousins for a while before they could sit down and watch the television set at six o'clock and watch the show Perry Mason. Imagine it. And he enumerated, listed all of the characters. Remember? Perry Mason, the attorney. Della Street, his assistant. Paul Drake. And, and he, he's right. He said, you know, at, at two minutes to 6.30, at 6.28, just two minutes before the program was over, the same thing would happen every single week. And the thing that would happen, it would look like Perry was going to lose the case again. And the defendant that everybody knew was innocent was going to not only be charged with a crime, but judged guilty and sentenced. But right before the end of the program, handsome Paul Drake would come through the back door. See, some of you are too young. You get, older folks, you've got to get the DVDs. I'm sure they're out there someplace. These are great shows. Paul Drake comes through the back door with a smile on his face He winks at Della Street. Della Street nods at Perry Mason. And the doors that are now open, through those doors comes what? The witness. (laughs) The witness. See, it's always everybody else's stories that are the best stories. The witness comes into the room, takes the stand, and tells the truth. And it is clear and evident, abundantly clear that it is the truth. And when the truth is spoken, the lies dissipate like a fog before a hot sun. They are pressed out of the courtroom. Folks, let me tell you what the enormous practical significance of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. And I look in this room and I see the faces of so many of us who have listened to and believed the lies 
You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not righteous enough. You've sinned again. And not only have you sinned again, you've sinned again in the same way. And your hearts are broken. And your souls are crushed. And the Father who has loved you in his Son from before the foundation of the world has not left you without and has not left himself without a witness. And the witness is the abiding, indwelling spirit of holiness who in those moments has this unique and glorious and wonderful and special ministry of speaking the truth to you, not giving you new information, not giving you some new revelation, but whose work is the work of an advocate speaking to you that Romans 8.1 is true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The love of God you will never ever be separated from again. And there is nothing in all of the creation that can separate you from that love. That's the work of the Spirit. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus promised in John's Gospel when he promised that he, Jesus, would send another, remember, I will send another helper. You know, the English words that have been used to translate that little word all by comparison with the original get at portions of the original but don't capture the whole of what is in view. Helper, frankly, is pathetic compared with the original. Comforter gets a little bit closer because it's Latin that means with strength. Cum forte. With strength. This one who will come will come with strength. But the real picture is the picture of an advocate. I will send you another advocate who will come with authority and with power, who will come alongside you to help you. An advocate. That is the ministry of the Spirit. That is the indwelling work of the Spirit. To be your advocate. That's interesting. The same word is used with respect to Jesus, isn't it? 1 John 2, verse 1. Brothers, I am writing this to you so that you might not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Did you know you have two advocates? You have Jesus Christ the righteous. Paul or John says, I'm writing these things. The things that I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you so that you might not sin. But he's not naive. He's not foolish. He knows you will. And what do you need to know? What do you need to know in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the fight? I'll tell you, friends, you need to know that you have an advocate And that that advocate is before the Father, and he is Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is pleading his own righteousness, his own shed blood for you. Father, remember, he's mine. 
she's mine. Remember, not that the father would forget. You see, it's for us. It's a picture for us. It's Paul Drake walking into the back of the room. It's Paul Drake bringing in the witness. It's the witness speaking and saying, this one is mine. This belongs to me. That's the truth. But you have another advocate. You get two. You have the risen Christ at the right hand of the Father doing for you what he did for Stephen. You remember when Stephen was being, being stoned to death because he was judged guilty by an earthly court? He looked into the heavens and whom did he see? He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Jesus acting the role of advocate in his behalf. Well, here you have another advocate. Here you have the Holy Spirit. But notice, the Holy Spirit isn't speaking to the Father about you. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you about the Father and the Son. The Spirit is bearing. We have Jesus speaking to the Father about you, being your advocate at the right hand of the Father. Very same word, paraclete, one called alongside to help, one who comes with help and strength. And now here is this other advocate, the Spirit who dwells within you, not speaking to the Father. Why? Because the Father knows you need somebody to talk to you. You need somebody who will take the truths of the gospel and will in this mysterious manner through preaching and through reading the scriptures and in prayer. It is the spirit who is the silent presence, the silent one commissioned by the father who comes to speak to you about the father and the son and their infinite and inexhaustible and unchanging love for you. It is the spirit whose ministry it is to say to you, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are cleansed. You are reconciled. You are accepted. You are freed from the threats of condemnation. You are adopted. You are delighted in. You are an heir. You are a child. That's the ministry of the Spirit. The church is... not throwing stones, not picking a fight. The church has been distracted from this. It's been preoccupied with gifts. It's been preoccupied with experiences. It has missed what is the highest and deepest and most significant ministry of the Spirit to speak to you about you and about the Father and the Son and their love for you. That is the highest ministry of the Spirit. And here's the other thing that the Spirit does. And this is in verse 15. We're doing this in reverse order. You can do that when you're preaching. Here's the second thing. You have not received again the spirit of fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father. By the Spirit's presence, by the Spirit's agency, by the Spirit's ministry, we are encouraged, we are enabled, we are inclined, we are prompted to cry out. And here is where the significance of the word enters in. This word cried out appears over 50 times in the New Testament. And often, most often, it is found in connection with expressions of anguish. Expressions of anguish. It is the word that is used in Luke 9, 39, 
of the little boy who is afflicted by a demon. And the text says, the father reports, the evil spirit seizes him and he, the little boy, cries out. Not the demon that is, but the little boy who is harassed by this demonic force cries out. It's a word that's used of legion in Mark 5, 5, living among the tombs, quote, always crying out and cutting himself. It's a word that's used with respect to the centurion when he sees Jesus dying. It is the centurion who cries out as he witnesses the anguish of Jesus. This is the son of God. Blind Bartimaeus, Mark 10, 47, cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. It's used in Revelation 12, too. The woman who is in childbirth, who gives birth to the child, cries out in the anguish of delivery. That's the word that is used here. It is a cry in anguish for help. And notice again, that it is the Spirit's ministry in us to nurture and cultivate and promote this kind of crying out. Here again, this is so incredibly significant pastorally. I know it for myself. I know it because I've been a pastor for over 30 years. I know the basic instinct and the basic impulse of our hearts. When we find ourselves in the midst of struggle, when we find ourselves in the conflict against sin or the devil or anything else, here is what our natural instinct is. Our natural instinct is to go away from God and get cleaned up in order to go back to God. The inclination is to move away from God and get strong so that I can go back to God and then warrant his help. I know you'll take exception theologically. I'm not talking theologically. I'm talking experientially and psychologically here. And do we see that it is the ministry of the Spirit It is the ministry of the Spirit to nurture in us, to cultivate in us, to prompt and promote in us a crying out to our Father, not after we've gotten ourselves strong, not after we've gotten ourselves cleaned up, but in the midst of our grief and anguish. Abba, Father, Daddy, help me. That's the nature of the ministry of the Spirit. For a long time, I've shared this, I know, in private conversations, and I'm sure I've shared it publicly. For the longest time, I misunderstood entirely what Jesus was saying to Paul when Paul, in the midst of his suffering, three times cried out, remove this, remove this, remove this. And Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For the longest time, I thought that the ministry of Jesus to me would be that he would make me strong. And then when I was strong, I could go be strong. Do you understand? The weaker I am, the stronger I am. That's exactly what the apostle is saying. The more helpless I am, the stronger I am. 
the more dependent I am, the more needy I am, the stronger I am. Jesus doesn't come to the strong, friends. The Spirit of God has no place in the life of a person who is self-reliant. The Spirit of God can't nurture and cultivate in the life of a person who is smart and righteous and keeps the rules and does everything in the right way. There's no place for the ministry of the Spirit in a soul like that because there's no need. It is the ministry of the Spirit dwelling within us to draw near to us to promote, to encourage, to prompt, to incite us, to cry out in the midst of our distress, Abba, Father, help me, Daddy, help me. That is the ministry of the Spirit. And I want you to notice just one last thing as we bring this to a close. I want you to notice where this ministry of the Spirit falls in this text. Let me suggest a little phrase. I actually came up with this this last week. I didn't steal it from anybody. I just came up with it. Because I'm brilliant, you see. This ministry of the Spirit falls within what I would call a parenthesis of pain. A parenthesis of pain. What's, what's this part of the parenthesis? It's verse 13 putting to death the deeds of the body, the battle, the fight, the struggle, the relentless, relentless conflict that you as a Christian find yourself in as you do battle with the world of flesh and the devil. And what's the other side of the parenthesis? Verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified. That's the parenthesis of pain, folks. The struggle against sin and the devil and the inevitable sufferings that come for those who are resolved to walk the steps that Jesus has walked before them. In the midst of that is this ministry of the Spirit This advocacy of the Spirit, where the Spirit says, You are loved. You are delighted in. You are a child. You are cleansed. You are forgiven. You are accepted. You are reconciled. You are an heir with your elder brother Jesus of all of the blessedness of the kingdom of heaven. It's in the parenthesis of pain that the Spirit accomplishes this ministry? Do we look for it? Do we anticipate it? Do we expect it? Do we pray for it? Do we know the liberty of the children of God, the liberty that enables us to cry out to a father who loves us so tenderly, Daddy, 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 help me. Help me. It's a great story. It is a story told of the Polish pianist Ignaz Paderewski. It is not true. I've researched it. But it's a glorious, glorious story. The story is of a young boy who comes with his mother 
to a Paderewski concert. And just before the great pianist is to come onto the stage, the little boy escapes his mother, runs up onto the stage, sits on the bench, and begins to play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And then he begins to realize what has happened. He's in trouble. He's disobeyed his mother, and there are hundreds of people aghast at what it is that he has done. The stage manager wants the boy gone. Get him out of here. Get him off the stage. The pianist grabs the arm of the stage manager and says, stop. And very quietly walks up behind the little boy, puts his hands on the keyboard and whispers in his ear, don't be afraid. I'm here. Keep playing. Don't be afraid. It's all right. I'm here. Keep playing. And the pianist, with his right hand and his left hand, creates an improvisational beauty around the little tune, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, in the midst of the boy's disobedience. I don't know how this works, folks, but somehow the spirit of the living God who has taken up residence in my soul takes my silly little twinkle, twinkle little stars and even my disobedience and turns all of it into a thing of majestic beauty. That's the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. I'm glad. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in the midst of our foolishness, in the midst of our silliness, in the midst of our confusions, and even in the midst of our disobedience, would you give us grace to see the smile of our Heavenly Father, And I pray for this congregation of people and for myself that you, Holy Spirit of God, more and more all the time would press deep into my and our souls these truths. No condemnation, no threat, no fear, cleansed, reconciled, forgiven, heirs, children, sons, restored to the loving embrace of the Father who has loved us in his Son. Holy Spirit of God, press these things ever more deeply into our souls that you might be praised together with the Father and Son. In whose name we pray. Amen.